0: daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Coming up, Blinken has traveled to Israel to try to seal Gaza truce deal, but Israel's prime minister has sharply rejected an end to fighting. Japan's TAPCO says new contaminated leakage has been found from Fukushima nuclear power plant. For the first time in some two decades, the United States is buying more from Mexico than from China, and Sweden has closed its investigation into Nord Stream pipeline blasts. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. China's consumer prices fell for a fourth consecutive month in January. Official figures show that the consumer price index, which is a main gauge of inflation, dropped by 0.8% year-on-year in January. On a month-on-month basis, however, this very index increased by 0.3% compared to a 0.1% rise back in December. According to China's National Bureau of Statistics, the year-on-year decline in CPI was mainly due to the very high comparison base in the previous year. In the meantime, factory prices declined at a slower pace in January compared to December. So joining us now on the line is Liu Zhiqing, senior, senior fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Mr. Liu. Um, Now, first of all, do you agree that this uh, consumption inflation figure was um, affected by the timing of the Spring Festival holiday, which boosted spending in January last year, but this year the holiday falls in February?
3: As we know that every year the Spring Festival is very positive for Uh, for the Chinese economic uh, uh, recovery. As we know, the spring festival is an important uh, festival in China. The, most of the Chinese uh, that uh, go out shopping and they enjoy their life and traveling uh, everywhere. So this is really a very important uh, factor that can affect or influence the so-called inflation or in- the price. I mean that in some areas for some special products of food, for instance, a hotel accommodation and the caterings and some special supply products for uh, kids for uh, aging people that, that the price work could be uh, a, a much uh, uh, higher than, than normal time so this is quite a, 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 I know that uh, the very normal uh, situation, not a very special meaning I think we should not have tried to over uh, estimated or, or over. Uh, mm. Explaining this uh, problem, this because Spring Festival is anyhow is a hot time that for shopping.
2: Mm. So if we somehow divide this consumer price figure into two subcategories. While food prices dropped by 5.9% year-on-year last month in January, non-food prices actually increased by 0.4% year-on-year in January. So what do you think this particular uh, pattern or picture tells us?
3: Uh, I think this picture can tell you something in different uh, understanding. First. the picture tells you that the situation last January, if you compare the food industry, uh, chapter compared to the last January. Mm. W- what we should know, the last January is the beginning of the month that uh, just after the pandemic ended in China. So that month, that, uh, I think the food supply chain has uh, something under pressure. That's why at that time, that the price quite uh, higher than the market uh, margin. But now, after one year that the market is becoming more mature and the supply chain is fully well managed, so that's why the food price this year is quite reasonable. That it dropped by almost six percent, five point nine percent. This is quite normal because the supply chain is well done at this moment. But the non-food Uh, Price only, uh, very small, slightly increase. It doesn't uh, have a great meaning to make any sense to explain this because many people have different digest for the non-food products. The Young people, gender, aging people, they have different uh, ideas about this. So, but uh, uh, only increase less than uh, half percent, half one percent at 0.4 percent is quite uh, reasonable. Okay. doesn't need to worry about it.
0: Mm.
2: Now, some analysts actually expect uh, the increase the consumer spending during this upcoming spring festival to help push price growth into a positive territory in February.
3: What is your projection? I should say that the price, in our uh, idea, understand it, uh, for the consumer price should be in a uh, positive uh, error, but uh, not always uh, as uh, the uh, negative margin. If if we compare the figure, it's already 14, 49% nine two percent. That is uh, really lower than the uh, margin price. But if we see that the price, uh, the background, uh, we can see it a good uh, signs that for the market the development is still in wealthy and in good shape. But uh, because it's try to meet the demands of the consumer, of the people, the majority of the people. So this is a very uh, important signal to the, uh, to the market and also to the, uh, to meet the demands of the people. So we need something that the new policy that to stimulate, to push all this, uh, the consumption to make the price a little bit warmer. I, I want to say the word warmer, not as high as, uh, uh as some in other countries, but a little bit inflation is still also positive for China's economy as always.
2: Mm, That's for sure. So a senior commerce uh, ministry official actually said earlier this week that uh, China will introduce a raft of measures or policies such as uh, stimulating purchases of vehicles and purchases of household appliances to boost the consumption over the course of this year. Do you think this is the right policy direction?
3: I should say that uh, from the ministry itself, it uh, makes its uh, uh, responsibility or accountability to make the uh, market more boomer or not boosted and in different ways. And his suggestion is also one of the ways that, that to stimulate the consumption, for instance, uh, buy cars or buy some house uh, operator. But, all these suggestions should be really followed a series of supportive uh, policies for instance the, the subsidies for the buyers the, the prices and the secondly how to make the uh, sales uh, services and the third is another point is that whether they know that how much demand from the market they need new cars and new house operators like TV, refrigerators, or washing machines, for instance, yeah. whether they know the market demand, how how big a size. So in my opinion, I think from the ministry, maybe should stimulate another policy that to have a persistent or consistent enforcement on the old machines that over, for instance, 10 years later, or ten years after the usage of the uh, house operator should be falsely that uh, mm-hmm, it phased out. Yeah, for, to get it, go, got out of the market. So they mm-hmm. have to buy the new ones. Only by doing so, I think the, this demand will be emancipated on the will be released. And otherwise, I think the demand is as always very limited. Okay, so that will require coordination from multiple government
2: agencies or ministries. Now in a bigger picture sense, uh, Zheqing, some Western media outlets are nowadays talking about a so-called persistent or entrenched deflation in China, which some people say could undermine business and consumer confidence in the country, and even undermine the stock market performance. What is your thoughts in this regard? Is there really such a thing as persistent deflation in China?
3: I should say, frankly, that China is not facing or under a small pressure of the deflation. It's not only because of the market itself performance, tell us this picture. But if we recall what the central government has characterized our problems and the challenges we are facing, I still remember the central government has the three points. First point that demand is weak. Secondly, supply chain is hitting by the global market. Third, expectation is mm. also very weak. All these three categories are closely linked with deflation. Yeah. But it depends on whether it's a small deflation or a big deflation. I think China only has a very a small pressure on the deflation we should pay great attention to avoid some further deflation so from western media, they they have something in different ways they, they are happy to see that china could have more problems especially for the greater deflation or greater pressure of some other problem because china has never had a high inflation as they had so they now try to Make something different ways that ah, we, you don't have inflation, but then you have deflation is also bad. So this is a really a wrong doing or wrong saying from the Western media. We should be uh, uh, alerted mm. to uh, not to follow this uh, comments. We should do our best jobs that to make our economy recovery more healthy, more sustainable, and especially to avoid inflation and also avoid deflation.
2: Mm. So you have actually um elaborated on a very valid point in that now in 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 those most recent years major economies across the world have Mostly being fighting against, I would say, stubbornly high inflation. Think about the situation in America. Think about the situation in in Britain, some particular EU countries. The ongoing cost of crisis over there. So, with that in mind, why do you think China is standing as a
3: kind of outlier in this regard? I I should say that China has already that uh, been. Uh, very uh, reasonable country that to ensure our economy uh, developing in the right uh, way or in the right uh, path. So at the very beginning, I think uh, the fighting against the inflation is the most uh, uh, powerful job for China's government. So we'll try avoid any uh, possibilities, uh, even this imported inflation from outside or the inflation caused by a domestic market so we tried our best to avoid it but nowadays i think china has successfully avoided any uh, danger for the uh, inflation and the deflation is something very normal during for the developing countries if the demand side is weaker because the demand side is weaker is not only because of our own policy it's because of the the external demand for instance the Decoupling from Western countries made a really great pressure on China's product and economy. So in this picture or in this way, we should really understand what really uh, real problem we are facing and the challenges we are dealing with. I think uh, the major problem is to, we should try our best to uphold our for, uh, our path and our way to China's modernization and also try to make all these economic Development in a very healthy and sustainable way. Not to be left side, not to be right side. We always try at the middle side to ensure the stability of the people's life to be increased regularly. Mm, That
2: was Mr. Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us.
4: Happy Year of the Long For the Year of the Chinese Dragon I wish you a new year filled with the strength and vitality of dragons and tigers It's Yuxuan from Roundtable
5: This is Niu Honglin from Roundtable and Takeaway Chinese This is Zhou Fang with the Beijing Hour I wish you 龙马精神 Cheng. May you have the energy and vitality of a dragon horse
2: Paving the way for a prosperous and successful journey ahead.
5: May you soar to new heights and achieve great success in your career. May your journey be guided by the profound wisdom embodied by the majestic
4: creature of the
5: Long.
2: You're listening to World Today, I'm Dinghan in Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his fifth trip to the Middle East since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. The top U.S. diplomat said after the meeting that negotiations would continue towards a deal to pause the fighting in Gaza and free the remaining hostages. In the meantime, the Israeli Prime Minister on Wednesday vowed to continue Israel's military offensive until total victory, suggesting his country would achieve this goal within a few months. Netanyahu has also rejected Hamas' condition for a deal to release the hostages as quote-unquote delusional. So joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So
6: basically,
2: I think um, Mr. Blinken has failed to achieve a major breakthrough uh, in his uh, meeting with Israeli officials, including with the Israeli prime minister. Now, still Blinken kept saying that there is a space for for a potential deal to be reached. However, there were some clear non-starters. So what do you think? is is leading to the situation here. What do you make of the particular situation here?
3: Well, b-
6: both sides are correct. Uh, Netanyahu says this is going nowhere. He wants uh, complete victory over Hamas, and he's going to make sure that uh, Hamas is nowhere near the... Um, and uh, doesn't lead anybody in, in Gaza when it's over. And In fact, uh, Israel is promising to... Uh, to be there for a long period of time, and, and Blinken's correct, he says that there is some room to maneuver here, I mean, he, he, he believes this, but it's not true, you know, it's the, it's the antithesis of what's really happening. The fact that uh, Secretary of State Blinken has been to the Middle East five times since October 7th tells you that not much has been working. working. The, the Israelis uh, are not on the same page, they don't have the same definition. Uh, probably Mm. 25 or 35 more of the hostages have died. In the last several weeks, there are probably only 100 left. There is a a great uh, sentimental value in in the United States and in Israel to to get the hostages back, but that isn't going to stop the Israeli commanders on the ground from pulverizing uh, uh, Hamas and destroying uh, all Mm. the infrastructure they can. So, uh, look, uh, I, I, I have great sympathy for Secretary of State Blinken, who has to make Joe Biden look like he's trying to achieve some kind of ceasefire. President Biden is in a very tough place here. He has uh, supported uh, Mm. uh, supported, uh, the Israelis without hesitation, and uh, American people don't like that.
2: Yeah. So before we talk about, say, the position of Biden, Let's first of all take a look at the, the the conditions put forward by the Hamas side, because the militant group has demanded a ceasefire lasting four and a half months, and an Israeli military withdrawal from the Gaza Strip, and the release of at least fifteen hundred Palestinian prisoners as a price. Let's put it this way: for releasing all the remaining all the remaining you know um, hostages held by. Uh, Hamas since October the 7th last year. So, Professor, how do you look at these very conditions and the way in which the Israeli prime minister has responded to these conditions?
6: Well, these are maximum positions. You I mean, Hamas has asked for in sort of an ambit claim for as much as it can. And uh, Netanyahu is not having a word of it. He's not Uh, he's not buying any of this. And he he said publicly in in his statement that he regarded Hamas's demands as delusional. Now, well, since Netanyahu is pursuing his own delusional program in, in Gaza, this is particularly significant because what he's trying to say is this means nothing to them. These things are not going to happen. No one's going to get a four and a half month pass to regroup in exchange for the remaining hostages. And by the way, when they're talking about returning hostages, they're talking about returning those who, who've who died. I mean, you know, just the bodies of these people. And the idea of releasing more uh, potential soldiers for Hamas, that's not on the cards either. I mean, I can't tell you, and I've studied diplomacy and written books about it all my life, we are not on the same page. Hamas and, and Israel are not on the same page when we're talking about diplomatic negotiations. Yeah. They are at sixes and sevens with what they want to achieve. Okay. So in the meantime, um, regarding
2: this, this this very spillover effects of this Gaza crisis, Professor, how would you look at these recent back-on-back uh, U.S. military actions towards targets uh, over there in Yemen, Iraq, and Syria? For, for example, a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad has killed the senior commander of a local militia, which the U.S. claims is behind a a drone attack in in Jordan last month, late last month, when three American soldiers were killed in that very attack. Do you think these strikes carried out by the U.S. could
6: solve any problems? No, not at all. I mean, let me just put it right out there. I do not believe that that killing foreign nationals on foreign soils foreign soil in the name of a retaliation is a good day's work. This is murder, plain and simple. You just can't kill uh, foreign nationals on foreign soil and say that uh, this is retribution. I mean, it's not, a, there's no trial, there's nothing. I mean, you're just, you're just uh, picking someone out to kill. Now, look, the United States, I think, is at war in in the Middle East. We have there right now we had thirty thousand troops before uh, October seventh another fifteen thousand have come in on these aircraft carriers and the, and and the uh, air force and the rest of it uh, The United states is is waging war indirectly against uh, Iran in Syria and in Iraq on the border of jordan and uh, it uh, It identifies hezbollah and Lebanon and Hamas as uh, as sort of puppets of Iran and they say the whole time we don 't want a larger war and of course. The idea is to try to rein in the Iranians. Now, I am sure the Iranians are are, uh, financing and uh, arming the rebels. The way the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, armed anybody who was against the other guy. That's part of the game. That's part of the game. So the United States is at war uh, with everybody in the Middle East except Iran, and Iran is the target. And of course... um, I believe that deterrence has broken down in the region and that the United States is continuing uh, these wars of uh, Mm. uh, since since 2003, that these endless wars are going on endlessly.
2: Okay. So, Professor, we still have about two minutes before we let you go. I mean, like you suggested, we don't want a bigger war. That's the comment by uh, President Joe Biden himself. But in the meantime... Uh, We have also seen, say, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that these recent U.S. military actions are, quote-unquote, the beginning, not the end. Then on the part of Blinken, uh, diplomatic efforts are going on this week. So all in all, do you see any self-conflict or self-contradiction in the way that Biden administration has responded to all these issues?
6: Oh, I I think American foreign policy for the past 30 years has followed a contradictory policy. You know, it does one thing and says another thing. and holds people to double standards when they don't believe them them, themselves. Yes, it it is contradictory. I mean, it's the classic classic dialectic at stake. Uh, You know, the other day when we had this attack in Jordan, Americans found out for the first time that there are 3,000 American troops in Jordan. In the Bashemite Kingdom of Jordan, protecting them against ISIS. I mean, Americans, ordinary Americans, most Americans, didn't even know they were there. I, I've talked to military people who didn't know they were there. So, you know, if you got 3,000 Americans in Jordan and some of them are at some outpost somewhere, they're just waiting to get killed one night, and that's exactly what happened. So I, I think American foreign policy is self contradictory, it has to have a real rethink. But of course, at the end of the day, the important thing is to end this war in Gaza, uh, without which nothing else will happen.
2: Okay, thank you very much for joining us. As always, that was Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. You are listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Dean in beijing We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to World Today, I'm Ding in Beijing. China is urging Japan to promptly disclose information on its latest leakage of radioactive water at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. This is coming after some 5.5 tons of radioactive water got leaked from that very power plant on Wednesday. The Chinese embassy in Japan says repeated accidents in the process of treating nuclear contaminated water have exposed the disorderly management of the operator, namely Tokyo Electric Power Company, as well as the Japanese government, highlighting the needs for the international community to carry out supervision. So for more, my colleague Xu Wen had a talk with Dr. Rong Ying, senior research fellow with the China Institute of International Studies.
4: Dr. Rong, it's reported that the leak from a vent was spotted by a worker who was cleaning the equipment before operating the facility, and the spokesperson of Fukushima power plant says vents should be closed during cleaning, but this time they were open. So what's your take on the incident?
0: Well, it's un- very unfortunate. I think, once again, you know, Fukushima Daiichi, I mean, the uh, nuclear contaminated water had, an, I mean, the process or the treatment of that has once again run into problems. I think this is the second, uh, as far as I know, incident or accident related to that. Back in a few months, we had a similar incident or incident related to the purification or processing of the uh, contaminated nuclear waters which involved four Japanese workers and uh, who again rushed to the, uh, the hospitals for emergency treatment. And it raised many questions first and foremost of was the probability of accident like that are very much big. It is largely because of the fact that we humans tend to make error. So we cannot rule out these possibilities. And secondly, of course, there are the question is whether operators or related sort of uh, companies whether they have done thorough investigations as they promised for the previous accident, which very much would help in managing or preventing the similar incident. If like any other incident like that, if it repeated. I mean, continue to make problems. It must be said something really is wrong with that. And the nuclear contaminated water of Fukushima Daiichi related to the safety, security of the environment, related, and also, of course, uh, are very much controversial things. And, and last but not least, I think, neighboring countries, and in particular, the fishing community of the Japanese themselves are very much opposed Uh, to that. So this is very unfortunate.
4: Well, talk about what will happen next. Uh, We have learned that Fukushima power plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, says no leakage into the sea has been detected, nor has any sign of contamination been detected outside the facility. In the meantime, the company says it plans to remove soil from surrounding area that may have been contaminated. So my question is, if this spillage is nothing to worry about, as the Tokyo Electric Power Company claimed, why do they plan to remove surrounding soil? If it is not safe, while removing surrounding soil, solve the issue and reduce environmental damage?
0: That's a great question. I think uh, definitely, yeah, Tokyo uh, Electric Power Company, the tobacco, would have to answer this question. And certainly, I think, uh, as your question alludes that there are big contradictions among the uh, in the way that they have been responded. And uh, certainly one can argue is a kind of precautious measures, uh, steps that taken. But until and unless we have uh, detailed sort of information and based on scientific investigation, we will not be able to know the damages that are, uh, has happened. It is also related to the uh, previous accident in uh, sort of uh, processing or in managing uh, that uh, nuclear contamination of the waters. So we do not know. But because of uncertainties or because of the contradictions arising from the incident, including this one, I think the international community have all the reasons to raise concerns and make requests and demanding and
4: the answer you just mentioned a couple of times that this is not the first time incident like this yeah. took place, so from dumping nuclear contaminated water into the ocean to the leakage of power plants, based on the past records, how do you assess the management capability of Tokyo Electric Power Company and also the Japanese government's supervision?
0: I think what the answer simple answer is that we have all the reason to doubt that. Peco, the Tokyo uh, Electric Power Company, had a very bad record uh, in terms of uh, managing the security and the safety of nuclear power. And this is on the record. This is being reported by many sort of uh, specialists that, for example, they had a very bad record of uh, hiding of uh, changing the data. As a matter of fact, one week after the incident, March 2011, the expert had already made the decision that the reactors involved had a big problem, but tobacco never recognized or never wanted to recognize to the fact and take proper measures to that. And then in two years later, once again, they secretly, release highly contaminated water into the sea and then so on and so forth so that only reinforce the impression actually the fact that the TEPCO, the tokyo uh, electric power company are uh, not sort of trusted or should not be trusted because of this record and that of course point to the real fact that The international community, the stakeholders, both in Japan and outside, have all the reasons to raise a big question, to ask Mm -hmm. more about the process, about the way that Capeco and how the Japanese, and of course, Japanese government, their capabilities to supervise that, Mm -hmm. oversee that. Of uh, course, well, it's not not very much related to the capability, rather the intention. Whether they are really ready or one takes responsibility to oversee to ensure that the safety and security should be put in the first rather than other considerations.
4: Lastly, Dr. Rong. Chinese embassy in Japan said that this incident once again proves that nuclear-contaminated water treatment facilities in Japan lack long-term reliability and highlighting the necessity for international supervision. What's your take on that? Do you believe the international community should increase their oversight of Japan's nuclear power plant usage?
0: I think the first person's remarks of the Chinese embassy in Tokyo simply hit the point that the factors behind this incident are very much related to three issues the capability of tokyo tokyo electric power company whether they have the capability or whether they wanted to show their capability to manage this issue and the second point is of course the oversight and the capability and the intention uh, of the Japanese government department concerned, uh, whether they are they are ready to take responsibility domestically and internationally, as an international community, because related to the marine environment, related to the safety and security of international uh, environment. And last but not least, I think technically the way that contaminated water, nuclear equipment that are being processed is the right way. This is, again, very much related to the science. But again, the Chinese government position, I think, reflecting the common understanding of the international community that the pulling for uh, establishment a kind of mechanism that all the stakeholders should be substantially involved in the process, international monitoring oversight of this issue. And uh, in the hope that this issue would it be managed in a scientific, transparent, and in a safe manner?
2: Dr. Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute for International Studies. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding in Beijing. Mexico has surpassed China as the leading source of goods imported by the United States. New figures from the U.S. Commerce Department is showing that the value of goods imported by the United States from Mexico rose by almost 5% from 2022 to 2023, hitting more than $475 billion U.S. dollars. In the meantime, the value of Chinese imports tumbled by 20% to 427 billion U.S. dollars. The last time, for your information, when Mexico goods uh, imported by the United States exceeded the value of Chinese imports was in 2002. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Edward Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman, Lee & Shi Law Firm. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Great to be here.
2: Any surprise when you saw this happening?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think it comes as any surprise to me, certainly, as a China watcher. Uh, It it certainly doesn't come as a surprise to probably most folks, because the economic relations between the United States and China have severely deteriorated in recent years. Um, And, you know, it's it's been a multiplicity of of causes, as well as the, the COVID situation. So uh, that there's been, a, you know, a, an aggressive trade fight that's been um, been ongoing since the Trump administration. So these economic relations, uh, you know, have uh, began under the Trump administration when they began imposing tariffs on Chinese imports in 2018, mm. and um, yeah, you know, arguing that the Beijing trade practices violated the global trade rules. President Joe Biden hasn't been much better; he's maintained those trade par- tariffs. After uh, taking office in 2021, and making it clear that you know the issues with China um, should be an area of common ground that they should try to find, but that really hasn't hasn't come to the forefront. So what's happened is uh, Mexico, which is uh, has almost no advantages when you think about it as far as a country and an infrastructure and the rules, and it ranks somewhere very low with uh, very high. I'm sorry with regards to corruption um you know is it's it's but its biggest asset is that it's uh, a neighbor of the united states canada's one and the other one is is mexico and so um you know that just because of that the happy accident i think that that's the reason why they're at 15.4 percent so they uh which they passed china which is at 15.2 percent and canada remains at 12 percent. so i, I it, again i don't see it as a uh, necessarily a big surprise but i think it's uh there's a trend that's growing and it's come yeah. from a lot of different sources yeah
2: so in particular actually the biggest drop in in terms of the u.s imports from china are in the realm like uh, in realms like uh, computers electronics chemicals and pharmaceuticals why do you think this is the case
1: yeah, that's very interesting. That it's those products in particular. I mean, again, that would be sort of a, what we like to call in the uh, United States, folks, at least the Amazon effect. Probably with with uh, computers, electronics, um, maybe pharmaceuticals, but uh, chemicals another thing. But um, that people want to buy things and they would like to get them immediately. When it comes from China, it you know it would it could take 11 days to come or whatever it is by boat. Uh, you know, and it's not particularly regular. It, it, there's a crossing in the United States at Laredo, Texas, between uh, Mexico and Laredo. And that apparently is is working twenty four hours a day. It's only a commercial crossing. and there's uh, you know it's working twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And people on the Mexican side drive their trucks there and then Americans into a, a zone. And then the American drivers will pick it up in that mm. truck and then bring it to the united states so the the fo- the point of that is that they're bringing in exactly what you're talking about and uh and and that that's where um you know they're they're filling in the gap
2: mm. some Chinese manufacturers have reportedly established some manufacturing facilities and factories over there in Mexico uh with uh, with an eye to um, advancing their their sales or their uh, supply chain connections with the U.S. market. What do you make of this particular phenomenon? Would you personally uh, encourage Chinese uh, businesses to do so?
1: I mean, from a legal perspective, uh, I think it's a good idea. Rather than having to pay the high tariffs, because these these tariffs that have been imposed upon upon China, it's forcing. China. I mean, to to be able to have a second look or, or Chinese manufacturers uh, to to take a look at Mexico because of the low tariff rates between the two countries. I mean, it's changed over the years, but uh, they're much lower than it would be in the United States. I mean, we know that the relationship with China and Mexico goes back to what 1972, something like that. And in 2005, you know, Chinese leader Hu Jintao came to Mexico promising increased investment, so it's not, you know, it's not been so long ago, and and they wanted to do it in automobile parts and manufacturers and mineral exploration. Um, And in 2008, the the Mexican president came to to Beijing, so there has been discussion back and forth, and I I think that there's been, you know, always friendly relations with a couple of hiccups between Mexico and and, uh, China. Hmm. Um, But but no, I, I think that obviously that if Chinese have to start to think about um, taking advantage of that and making it you know made in Mexico in some instances rather than made in China, in order to uh, circumvent some of these uh, very high tariffs that they 're facing if we if things don 't change and hopefully things will be able to change mm.
2: through,
1: through talking and negotiation.
2: Mm. So, on the Mexican side, uh, this country's president, Mr. Andrei Muno López Obrador, said uh, earlier this week that Mexico's uh, trade status is giving this country some kind of new leverage because it would make it much harder for the United States to close its southern border with Mexico, to limit, say, immigration, as suggested in some ongoing negotiations regarding a border bill in in the U.S. Senate, do you think um the this particular point by this uh, Mexican president uh, has 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 a point here? You
1: know, I think he does have a point. I mean, it, it's one that's worth exploring. Certainly, I mean. Mexico is our neighbor. it is now the number one trading partner and like you said, it wasn't until two thousand and two that they they were our number one trading partner, but before that I mean it was Canada, so I mean things go up and down and change because of what kind of products and what kind of people that uh need those products in the United States. You know Mexico is not blessed with a lot of things, and so um it, it just is you know the top fifty ports in the you know in the world. None of them are Mexican, for example, and none of them come close to the kind of trade and whatever is going on between, say, China and the United States. So they have their own host of problems. But I do think that, you know, Mexico and the United States, because of, again, remember that California and all New Mexico and all these areas used to belong to Mexico. It was the Mexican War of 1848 that brought them into the United States, actually. So that was one part of Mexico. So we're inexorably linked because of that border. We're inexorably linked. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a river that passes between Laredo and and uh, Mexico. And um, you know, Lenovo is operating in, in this uh, region and has been for quite some time. And mm. there is a, a Chinese uh, operation there. That, but I, but I do see that it will give them more leverage. And I, I think that. Uh, yeah, this border thing has been ongoing for quite some time, and I hope that it gets, it gets solved.
2: Mm-hmm. So very briefly, the final question before we let you go. I mean, putting aside this very immigration issue between the two sides, do you think this new trend regarding trade we're talking about today is going to pave the way for more trade uh, frictions or disputes between between the U.S. and Mexico?
1: Yeah, I mean, immigration is a huge issue and always in the the headlines, but I do think that you're going to see more and more trade-related disputes between the United States and Mexico because you're going to have people that are going to be parsing out the rules and the laws and uh, the tariffs, and as a result, you're going to see the pushback from the United States inevitably and from uh, companies there. But at the same time, I, I would say that there's a lot of U.S. companies that are also like Chinese companies who are looking to go there that have taken advantage of the labor and the situation in Mexico themselves. Mm. So um, yeah. it might be a little bit different.
2: Yeah, your point's well taken. But thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Edwards Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman Lee and Law Firm. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Sweden has officially closed an investigation into the explosions that blew up Nord Stream pipelines back in 2022. Prosecutor Mats Jonquest said officials had concluded that this very case does not fall under Swedish jurisdiction. He added that a probe by Germany's prosecutors is ongoing and his team has handed over the relevant materials to the German side. So for more, my colleague Zhao Ying is joining us in the studio. Thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: Now, this very investigation conducted by the Swedish side has been going on for some 16 months without reaching any conclusion. So can you first of all explain what their reasoning was uh, in terms of ending this very probe?
5: Yes, well, according to Sweden's public prosecutor, the primary purpose of the investigation was to establish whether Swedish citizens were involved in the act and whether Swedish territory was used to carry out the act and thereby risked damaging Swedish interests or Sweden's security. And after 16 16 months of investigation, they have now reached the conclusion that this is not the case and therefore uh, Swedish jurisdiction did not apply. And the prosecutor said Germany's inquiries are ongoing and Sweden has handed the evidence it has uncovered uh, to German investigators. But he said due to the secrecy that prevails in international legal system, he was unable to comment further on the details unearthed by either side,
2: okay, so one thing pretty intriguing is that this very explosion back in twenty twenty two clearly it happened in the Swedish and Danish economic zones. News reports made that very clear. so how can Sweden claim that it's not within their jurisdiction?
5: Well, it is true that the explosions at the pipelines took place about 80 meters underwater in the ocean floor, in the Baltic Sea, in the Swedish and Danish economic zones, but actually is in international waters. And Sweden's reasoning for closing their investigation hinges on the concept of jurisdictional nexus in international law, because, you know, traditionally countries have jurisdiction over crimes committed within their territory, and this principle extends to their exclusive economic zones for matters related to natural resources and environmental protection. However, the concept of jurisdictional limitations restrict a country's ability to exercise uh, its legal authority in certain situations, and one such limitation is the jurisdictional nexus, uh, and that requires a connection between the crime and investigating countries' interests or nationals. So Sweden can well argue that uh, no Swedish individual or territory was the intended target. Uh, Even though the explosion occurred within their economic zones, uh, they argue that uh, the uh, the perpetrators aimed at the pipelines themselves and not Sweden specifically. And although uh, the incident potentially impacted regional security and the environment, uh, Sweden may argue that they didn't suffer specific economic or legal harm as a direct result. Uh, I mean, although determining what constitutes a direct target or harm can be open to interpretation. Um, But I mean, obviously, under Swinton's interpretation, it is time to end the probe.
2: Hmm. So do you think this latest episode we are talking about here will somehow leave this whole case unsolved? I'm asking this question because we still have no idea regarding who exactly caused that very explosion, don't we?
5: Yeah, the explosion is still a mystery. And, and, you know, Sweden and Denmark have labeled it a deliberate act of sabotage. And Swedish prosecutors uh, have later found traces of explosive at uh, the site of the blasts. Uh, And German investigators have traced the explosive back to a yacht, which they suspect was used to, to transport them to the blast site. Uh, but this uncertainty around the attack has fueled many theories pointing, fi- fi- uh, pointing fingers to uh, various sectors. Uh, you know, soon after the, expo- uh, the explosion, were, uh, there was uh, speculation that Russia was behind them, which, uh, of course, Kremlin has denied. And to some people, that actually made little sense because Russians were deeply invested in the two Nord Stream pipelines. And a month after the blasts, uh, the Russian Defense Ministry alleged that uh, representatives of the UK Navy participated in planning, supporting and executing the attack without giving any evidence. And and Putin and other Russian officials have also said the US had a motive to carry out the attack, as it wanted to hot supplies of cheap Russian natural gas to Europe and provide Europe with more uh, expensive liquefied natural gas. Uh, The US has also denied involvement. Uh, And in March last year, German media claimed that a pro-Ukraine group had sabotaged the pipelines using a vessel that set out from the port of Rostock yes. uh, Ukraine also rejected those reports so now 16 months after the explosion um, the attack is still a mystery.
2: Okay so I guess um, given the current situation we can only place our hope uh, upon uh, the Danish side as well as the German side whose probes are still ongoing?
5: uh yes uh, authorities in Denmark and Germany will con- uh, will continue separate investigations into the t- the attack but both have been tightly controlling their information and Russia has repeatedly complained that the west has not shared information from uh you know its investigations. And Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has just, said, uh, just now said that Russia will now watch what Germany does to investigate the explosions. And Russia also said it will be transparent in its own probe into the um, explosions. But I mean, we still need to wait and see whether there will be uh, okay. any breakthrough.
2: So uh, in your observation, what could be really hindering investigators from reaching any conclusion because anyhow, these um, investigations have been pretty extensive.
5: Yeah, you know, first of all, I think gathering physical evidence from the deep Baltic Sea is challenging. But also, I think attributing responsibility uh, may raise some very sensitive issues and potentially impacting the ongoing war in Ukraine and uh, international support for Kyiv. And uh, this complexity, I think, might also explain the lack of urgency in pursuing investigations further.
2: Okay, thank you very much uh, for joining us in the studio. That was my colleague Zhao Ying. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's major headline news. Blinken has traveled to Israel to try to seal Gaza True Steel, but Israel's Prime Minister has sharply rejected an end to fighting. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episode, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.